Good evening, everyone. My name is Hang, and I'm a third-year philosophy student at the University of Manchester. Um, the fact that uh, many of you are here, I take it to be that at least some of you are very interested in asking a very provocative question. Why would anyone believe in the resurrection of Jesus? After all, we live in an age of technology with planes flying in the sky, with advancement of science. Why would anyone believe in this? Well, if you have this question, then you have my encouragement, because I think it's a question of great significance for two reasons. One is that the resurrection is the proof of the biggest religion in the world, Christianity. As the Apostle Paul puts it 2,000 years ago, Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. In fact, no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, no gospel, no church music, no church on Sunday, and no refreshment after church, which would be really sad. <laughs> well, it is also a significant question, because billions and billions of people profess to have faith and to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus, there are two ways you might be inclined to think about this. One is to say that because there is no evidence for it, so people just People who go to church, they don't actually believe in what they say they believe. They just go there for, let's say, friendship or community or church music. So they're just engaging in some sort of religious fictionalism. In fact, I heard about this in one of my lectures this semester on the very topic of religious fictionalism. There's this one philosopher in particular who made this point, and I remember sitting there thinking to myself, well, that can't be true unless I'm the only one who's been taking it literally all this time along. How come nobody has ever told me about it? Another way to think about it is to say that because there is no evidence for it, people just believe without evidence. So maybe you grew up in church. You happen to believe it because your parents told you to or the people around you believed it. But there's absolutely no evidence for it. Or even worse. You believe despite the evidence to, to the contrary, because after all, we don't see people coming back from the dead all the time. All figures in history, kings, emperors, scientists, and philosophers, seems to me that once they hit the grave, it's game over. But whatever, you might, whatever way you might be tempted to think about this question, it seems to me that it hangs on the question of whether or not there is evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what we're going to do today. Look at the whether or not there is evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But before we go any further, I just want to say a few things about the kinds of tools that are involved in our investigation, so we can get really clear about uh, the domains of knowledge that are involved. Specifically, I want to argue that these questions involve tools in philosophy, history, and theology. On one hand, we're asking the question, did the resurrection happen? Did 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus literally rose again from the dead? So it's a question of past events. So here comes a question of history, in particular ancient history. On the other hand, you might, you, might, you might say like, wait, we're talking about a miraculous event here. We're talking about a miracle. Uh, so it's not a natural event, because when I open my physics textbooks, I don't see the law of resurrection next to the laws of thermodynamics. So it's a question of miraculous, uh, miraculous event. With the question of miraculous event comes the question of 
whether or not it's possible for there to be a divine intervention. With divine intervention comes the question of the existence of God. Does God exist? So these are the questions of philosophy. And suppose that we finally conclude that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. What does that mean for the claim attributed to him as a miracle worker, as a traveling preacher? What does it mean for the claims that he made about himself to be the son of God, to be the one who forgives sins, to, be, to, to die for the sins of humanity? What does it mean for us? These are questions of theology. And it's a very personal question as well, because if a man indeed rose from the dead, then I highly recommend that you find out more about him. So as I've already mentioned, history, philosophy, and theology. So let's first talk about history. How do we know what happened in the past, given that we don't have voice recordings or video recordings of past events? And after all, I think it's pretty clear to me that scientists can't reproduce the past in the lab. So we don't have this kind of hard evidence. So what do we have? Well, what we have is written documents that exist in various forms that tell us about the past, such as biographies, letters, and journals. And it seems to me that it would be unreasonable to demand other things for evidence other than these kinds of written documents as well, because that's the only thing that we have. Also, I want to mention that historians, um, they don't just accept things written about an event or person because, for example, you can have like lots and lots and lots of sources written about an event or person, but we don't take all of them to be true. They also have criteria to distinguish and authenticate historical events, and that's what we're going to use today. So um, our first criterion is, is that the earlier sources are preferred. So for example, if we're talking about an event that took place in the first century and we have two sources, one in the first century and another one in the third century, the one from the first century is to be preferred because we want to get as close as possible to the eyewitnesses. But also, the short time span makes it really, really difficult for legendary aspects of an event to develop as well. The second criterion is the criterion of multiple attestation by independent sources. That is to say that we want different sources which are independent from one another, testifying, confirming the same event. And the third one is that we want confirmation from unfavorable sources, sources which are hostile um, to the event or to a particular group, confirming something about that group or that event. The fourth criteria is the principle of embarrassment, and that is when an author admits a piece of information that would seem embarrassing to them, that does not help them in any way, shape, or form. So I'll give you one example. So for example, if somebody is being tried for stolen money, and all of a sudden they admit to other crimes like murder or whatever, things that are just going to make it worse for them, then there's, there's probably, probably some credibility to their claims that you should at least look at. So how are we going to argue for the resurrection of Jesus? Well, we have an argument to make, and the way we're going to do it is uh, what's commonly known as the minimal facts argument. So we're going to present four facts that are accepted by the majority of historians 
and I will argue that the best explanation for all of this data available is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And you might say like, well, wait, just because lots of people in academia believe in something doesn't make it true, right? Well, if you have that thought, I actually agree with you because that would be a fallacy. But what we intend to do is that to show that, well, if lots of scholars, people who spend their lifetimes studying all these things agree on something, and they agree on something, it's probably because they're really persuaded by the evidence, and we're going to present the evidence. Well, the first fact that we want to defend is that, to argue for, is that Jesus died by crucifixion. So as the story goes, Jesus was arrested, and then he was initially tried by the Sanhedrin, and then he was handed over to Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman governor of Judea, and the uh, to be tried the next morning, and he was flogged, condemned to death, and finally he was crucified and he died. So what kind of evidence do we have for this fact? Well, the first, the first line of evidence that we have is actually from the Christian sources, Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John, which multiply attest that Jesus died by crucifixion. And in particular, I want to stress the account provided by Mark. Um, which contains what is known as the Passion Narrative, which refer to the account in the last week of Jesus' life, starting from the time that he was arrested in Gethsemane, all the way up until his burial and empty tomb. Now, the majority of scholars, lots of scholars, in fact, the majority of scholars already agree that Mark is our earliest and oldest gospel which is, let's say it's dated to around 65, 60 to 65, but the passion narrative itself is even older than that. One scholar dated to about 40 to 50 AD, so it's about uh, the first or two decades within the event. Well, then you might say like, well, wait, wait a minute, 10, minute, 10 years is such a long time. How can we still trust it? Isn't it too late? Well, it's not too late for two reasons. One, because in the ancient time, we have no way of recording things and hardly anyone know how to read or write. Um, one scholar estimated about 2% of people in Judea actually know how to read or write. So they had their own way of preserving the informa information for, for people at the time, which is through oral tradition and eyewitnesses. And if, in fact, this source goes back all the way within 10 years of the event, then it's totally possible for all the eyewitnesses to still be alive. So it's still within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And that's what you want from testimonial evidence. You want people to be alive, to be testified, to, te to be able to testify. Second, I want to argue that these accounts are historical treasures, given how early they are. So, to see this very clearly, just compare it to the only surviving Latin biography of Alexander the Great that we have, which is dated to about 400 years after he died. 400 years. And we have the gospel here, which dates back to about 20 to, like at most 20 years after the event. So, um, and also, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the movie, but um, this guy called um, William Wallace, has anyone seen the movie or heard about him? No? Yes? Yes. So, here's an interesting thing. 
The first source we have for William Wallace is about 120 to 130 after he died from a blind singer. <laughs> so, so you can see like what we have in the gospel, it's the kind of things that make ancient historians feel like a kid in the candy store. But well, we also have Paul's letters. So Paul was this early convert to Christianity. He was formerly a persecutor of the church. And after his conversion, he became a leader uh, of the early church. And he was known and knew many of the disciples of Jesus and probably many eyewitnesses as well. So scholars mostly had his conversion at around two years after the death of Jesus. So he was a very early and well-known source. He wrote many letters to the early Christians, giving them instructions on various things. And in his letters, he actually mentions the crucifixion of Jesus on multiple occasions. So for example, I have the Galatians, and there was no indication of him meaning anything other than a real historical event. So again, I want to sum up all this point that we have multiple attestations from um, the Passion narrative in Mark and the other Gospels, but also the letters of Paul, who knew the eyewitnesses and, and, and was very early as well to the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, the second line of evidence that I want to engage with is from the non-Christian sources. So a few names come to mind. The first one is Josephus, who was a Jewish historian from the first century, and he was by no means a Christian. Well, he mentioned Jesus being condemned to be crucified under Pontius Pilate, which fits very accurately and confirmed very nicely with the account that we have with the Gospels. Um, and also there was also the Roman historian and politician Tacitus as well. Um, so we can have here in the second reference. Um, so I would argue that given the position as a politician and how he was close to, to the Roman government at the time, he probably had, had access to some of the best sources and information and reports and also eyewitnesses as well. And he actually confirmed the crucifixion of Jesus here. Um, so as you can see here, he talks about, first of all, the harsh treatment that the emperor Nero uh, gave to the Christians and the torture and so on. But he also briefly mentioned the founder of the Christian religion being crucified. So Jesus was crucified according to Tacitus. Last but not least, we have evidence from Lucian, who was a second century philosopher, who was very hostile to Christians. And I want to make two points here, because one is that this guy, well, this guy was, was not a Christian by no means, and he was actually writing a book, making fun of Christians. So two points I want to make here. One is that he's likely to be trustworthy because he's meaning to mark Christians. And unlike Christian sources, he, he doesn't have this bias of just trying to prove Christianity. So he's, a, he's an unfavorable source. Secondly, he's being very specific here. If you take a look at the reference here, um, he's talking about um, the, the, the Christian worship a crucified person. And that's very important because we have many people from the first century being crucified in the Christian circle. For example, like Peter was crucified upside down. But Peter, of course, was not worshipped by the Christians. So when he's talking about a crucified person who was worshipped, he means no that limits our option to just Jesus. So he confirmed that Jesus was crucified. 
So yes, just to sum up everything, so I think that the death of Jesus is very firmly historical as we have evidence from different independent sources. We also have confirmation from the enemies and favorable sources as well. So um, obviously um, you have a picture here, John Dominic Crossens, a skeptical New Testament scholar, and he is actually on board with the, uh, with the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, fact number two, um, I want to argue that um, Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Well, before we go any further, I want to talk a bit about the background of the time and place that Jesus was in. And, and I want to point out a few, a few things. The first thing I want to point out, point out is that the Jewish people, they had a great emphasis on keeping their laws and traditions. So we have evidence of that from a reference uh, in Josephus talking about them being trained to have courage to, in order to preserve their laws. And one of the laws that they were keen on preserving follows from Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23, which directly instructs a crucified body to be buried on the same day because the victim is considered to be cursed by God. Josephus, Josephus also attests in multiple places to the importance of burying dead bodies even those of the enemies, and most importantly, crucified bodies to be buried before sunset. Um, there's also a, a list of evidence. Obviously, I can't go into details in each and every one of them, but I can send it to you if you want to read it over the weekend. Another line of evidence I want to present is that uh, from the Roman sources, and I want to argue that the Roman, in fact, encouraged burial practice, or at least they would allow for crucified bodies to be buried if requested by somebody close to the victim. We know this from the Digesta, which is a collection of Roman laws up until um, 530 to uh, five, uh, 533 AD. So it is entirely possible, and in fact, I would argue that it is highly probable that Jesus was buried in the tomb after the crucifixion, given the background of the time and place that he was in. Well, next, I want to look at the direct evidence for the burial of Jesus. Well, the first one I want to make is that we have multiple attestation again of independent and early sources for the burial of Jesus. To begin, I want to stress the Gospel of Mark again, which is the earliest of the Gospel, and the burial story, um, and the burial story is once again, is part of the passion narrative, which refers to the uh, events surrounding the last week of Jesus' life. This is important because if you look at all the gospel, they seem to present brief stories about Jesus, but they're not chronologically arranged. But, on, but when it comes to the passion narrative, that's when we have like a continual and smooth sailing story. This is very important because it suggests that Mark had an independent source for the passion narrative, which is even older than the gospel of Mark itself. So if that's the case, then we have the burial of Jesus being attested by a very early source in the Passion narrative, possibly within the first decade of the event. Not only that, we also have another attestation in one of the letters of Paul. In Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians contains a creed known as the 1 Corinthian Creed. In it he writes, For what I receive I pass on to you, as of first that he was buried. The letter was written between somewhere between 53 to 54 AD, but the creed was formulated way before that. Most scholars dated to within the first five years after Jesus died, 
Jude Ludeman, uh, who is an atheist scholar, for example, dated to the first two years after the crucifixion. James D.G. Dunn has it within months after Jesus' death. And so it's a very, uh, it's a very early material. And how did Paul receive it? You might ask. Well, scholars think that it is either that Paul received with, re receive it when he went to visit this and, and spent time with the apostle James and Peter in around uh, 36 AD, or he received it at the time of his conversion, which put it a few years after Jesus died. This is very significant for two reasons. One is that Paul received the creed from eyewitnesses. So he had personal contact with people who saw the event, people who knew Jesus. Two, it is very early and the time span between the event and when Paul received it is very short. These factors combine, the very presence of the eyewitnesses in the short time span makes it very difficult and very high likely for legendary aspects to develop. Secondly, it makes no sense for the Christian to invent the story of the burial of, Joseph, uh, burial of Jesus because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the very court which condemned Jesus to death. So naturally, there was a lot of resentment and anger toward the Sanhedrin, and it seemed unlikely that Christian would make up a good story of honor and kindness about a member of the court that they were hostile toward. Also, if Joseph of Arimathea was invented to pump up the credibility of the story, why did he just appear and then totally vanish? If it was such an important intervention to provide authenticity and credibility to the story, why not have him play a longer role than just a guy who buried Jesus? The third point I want to make is that there are no competing narratives to the burial story in all of our early sources. So if Jesus was left hanging on the cross after he died, as you know, some people think, uh, we would expect to see some early competing tradition that attest to this. For example, uh, after all, crucifixion was a public event and Jesus was a very popular figure. And so many people saw his execution and what happened to the body afterwards. So we would expect to see other competing stories or even reports from the Roman if Jesus was not buried and that his body was left hanging on the cross. The fact that there are no competing tradition is very surprising on this hypothesis that Jesus was not buried. But it's not at all surprising on the hypothesis that Jesus was buried, because we would expect to see only one unified narrative in our early sources which attests to the burial of Jesus. And that's exactly what we have. The only evidence that we have is that Jesus was buried. Um, so this is just a summarize, uh, summary of what I've just said. Um, just gonna have to move really quick because time is uh, running out. Well, the third fact I want to defend is that um, following the crucifixion of Jesus, his tomb was found empty by a group of his woman followers. And the evidence for that I have is as follows. One, it is multiply attested in our early sources again. Um, the story of the discovery of the empty tomb is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark as part of the Passion narrative. I also have spoken a bit about it, and I'll mention it again, that Mark is the earliest of the Gospel. But, the, gospel, uh, but the, the, the source for the Passion narrative comes from an, even an older source than that. Another thing I'll, I'll say about this Mark account of the empty tomb is that it is starkly simple and shows no signs of legendary aspects or theological or, th or apologetic motives added to it. And what do I mean by that? 
Well, to see this, let's just compare the Gospel of Mark, or the account given by Mark, to the account given by a second-century forgery, the quote-unquote so-called Gospel of Peter. So in the account Gospel of Peter, which is a forgery, the tomb is guarded by a large group of people, including the Roman guards, all the chief priests, and all, lots and lots of people, the Pharisees, and so on. Suddenly, during the night, a voice speaks from the sky, and the stone at the entrance of the tomb rolls away. Then two men are seen flying down from the heaven, and they enter the tomb. Next, two, two gigantic figures are seen coming out of the tomb, being so big and tall that their head reached the sky. Then, this is followed by a third figure who is even bigger and taller than them, with their head overpassing the sky. Then a cross comes out, and then a voice was heard from the heaven, saying, Have you preached to them that sleep? And the cross speaks back and says, Yes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what a legendary account looks like. But we don't have any of these elements in the account given by Mark because it, it makes sense because it, it's so early and we have eyewitnesses. Somebody couldn't just add anything to it. Not only that, it's also attested in Matthew and Luke. Now people might say that Matthew and Luke cannot be independent sources because they actually use Mark as one of their sources. Mark, uh, by the way, Mark, Luke, and Matthew are known as the Synoptic Gospel because they share many of the same stories in a similar sequence or even sometimes identical wordings. Well, I will agree that Matthew and Luke quote, oh, Matthew and Luke quote Mark here and there. I will argue that they do not do so when it comes to the story of the empty tomb because each of these gospels contain extra and different information which is complementary to one another. So for example, Matthew tells us that not only that the tomb was found empty, but there were also guards at the tomb. Luke tells us there were other women involved other than the ones mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. This suggests that Matthew and Luke have independent sources apart from Mark that testify to the empty tomb. And we can very well imagine Luke and Mark doing their investigations and they have having access to other witnesses that Mark might not have had. And even if you don't agree that Matthew, Luke, and uh, Matthew, Luke, and Mark are independent, we still have John, which is largely distinct from the other three Gospels, which attest to the empty tomb as well. So whichever way you want to go, you can't get out of the multiple attestation in our early sources. Um, secondly, the woman being the first and only one to discover the empty tomb testified to the historicity of the empty tomb. And how does this work? Why is this significant? Well, in the first century Judea, the testimony of woman was considered to be unreliable and not trustworthy. Now, we have evidence of this in non-Christian sources. Josephus, for example, he wrote very harshly. Um, I'll just read what he says. Um, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of their levity and the boldness of their sex. And if you look at the last reference uh, from the Talmud, it's even harsher than that. Um, Sooner let the words of the law be burned than delivered to women. So given the status as second class citizens in the first century Judea, that they could not serve as witnesses in the Jewish court, it is very surprising that they appear to be the first to discover the empty tomb, as this would be seen as an, embar as an embarrassing piece of information. 
Now think about it for a second. If you were in the first century Judea and you want to make up a story that people want to believe, that people would likely believe, why would you include the presence of the very witnesses that people would find hard to believe and would even appear embarrassing to you? It would make more sense and more believable to people at the time to include men such as, say, Peter as an eyewitness. In fact, later legendary gospels, such as the Gospel of Peter, were clearly uncomfortable with the fact that women discovered the tomb, um, and they tried to change it. For example, the Gospel of Peter has male soldiers and a large crowd of Jews witness the resurrection firsthand, with the, vo- with the woman only showing up briefly later uh, to see the aftermath. They are not given any role to give their testimony. So we can appeal to the principle of embarrassment and the fact that it is a woman whose testimony was considered unworthy and unreliable were the, the first discoverers of the empty tomb is best explained by the fact that the story is credible and authentic. Because why would you include such information unless it was true? The last line of evidence that I want to present for this fact is that what's called um, the Jerusalem factor. So um, Jesus was crucified and killed in Jerusalem. The resurrection message was also claimed there in Jerusalem by his followers not long after he died. And they were proclaiming a physical resurrection of Jesus. Of course, there was also a lot of hostility towards them from the authorities, Romans and Jews. Think about this. If the tomb was not empty, it would have been extremely difficult or even impossible to proclaim the risen Christ in Jerusalem because the Romans or the Jewish authority would have, they would have just taken the corpse of Jesus and publicly displayed it. Then that would, be, that would have been the end of the Christian story. There would have been a devastating blow to the early Christian movement. Or somebody could just point out like, what are you talking about? He's, he's right there in the tomb in Jerusalem. Also, we would, we would expect to see mention of Jesus' body laying in the tomb still from unfavorable sources, but there are none. In fact, all the enemies of Christianity attest to the empty tomb indirectly. So for example, in Matthew, when the guards report back to the authorities about the missing body, the soldiers were told to tell people that the disciple stole the body. So here's the thing, stolen body presupposes the empty tomb. So just to sum up um, everything uh, for this fact, we have multiple cessation from uh, early independent sources and also the eyewitness of the, uh, the eyewitness testimony of the woman as well, um, which we can appeal to by the principle of embarrassment, make the story more credible. We also have the um, Jerusalem factors, as I have just explained. So these things combined make it very strong um, make a very strong evidence for the empty tomb of Jesus. And uh, I think that's it for me um, for now. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, hope you enjoy your evening. See you later. Okay, so um, we've presented so far three facts, um, uncontested or widely agreed by majority of scholars across the spectrum. So both Christian, non-Christian, Muslim, atheist, they, they agree uh, pretty much unanimously uh, on those three facts. And I'm going to share now the fourth fact on which we will rest our case. Um, 
fact number four is that Jesus, that the disciples of Jesus believed, genuinely believed that he rose, uh, that, that they've seen him after he died. So they genuinely believe that he rose from the dead. Um, so I wanted to start by introducing a certain, a few facts about the context in which um, this whole movement started. Judaism had no need for, uh, for a concept of someone, individual person rising back uh, from the dead. Um, they, they had no expectation of something like that. Instead, they believed that there would be one day when at the end of the, the world, at the end of the age, there will be, um, God will bring everyone back to life to judge, uh, to judge them. And so, so basically, Judaism as a religion is a perfectly internally consistent uh, religion. It doesn't require, there wasn't any gap in the, in the worldview. It doesn't require for, for there to be an invention of a resurrection. Um, so, so that's, for example, one thing that uh, also gives, uh, is an argument that this wasn't a legendary development. Uh, because there was actually no motive to invent something like that. Um, it also was an honor and shame culture. Uh, here I have a quote from Ben Witherington III. What a name. I mean, imagine having a familial ordinal III. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, so he says that ancient people uh, believed that how you died reflected on, uh, revealed your character. If you die like a criminal, I am not listening to your teaching anymore. Now, Jesus was uh, killed uh, and was crucified uh, because um, he was accused of blasphemy. So, so the Jews delivered him, but he did. Crucifixion was uh, reserved for the worst criminals. And um, therefore, he, uh, he would have not been really uh, regarded anymore. That would be just a proof that, well, there we go, he was not um, important. And then uh, the Jews also expected that one day there would come a Messiah, this anointed person uh, by God. Uh, and their concept was, by, by reading certain bits uh, from the Old Testament, their concept was during the, during the period of, of uh, intertestament, between testaments, so, so between 400 BC and um, the first century AD, they, 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 uh, they expected that this Messiah will come and rescue them from the enemies. So it will be a triumphant, um, a triumphant uh, uh, kind of ruler or king or a person who will conquer. And in their context, they conceptualize this as he will uh, conquer the Romans who occupied. Um, now, they did not really expect the Messiah to uh, be killed, and um, so that was a disappointment. Um, so, so, how do we know that uh, the disciples sincerely believed that uh, Jesus rose from the dead? Now, uh, Heng already mentioned the creed, um, the First Corinthians creed. Um, so. Paul is writing to Corinthians. He is uh, uh, saying that um, he that the message about the resurrection is not 
um, something that he invented. He is quoting something that uh, the early Christian movement uh, has been reciting or, uh, or has stated early on. Now this creed, as Heng mentioned, dates back to, uh, according to one atheist scholar, uh, Gerd Ludemann, uh, to within two years of the crucifixion, and according to Dunn, uh, within months of crucifixion. So it's a very early, um, very early source as to what the Christians believed. It wasn't a, an invention or a legendary um, a development. They actually did believe all of that very early, from the start. And he, he uh, so as he talks to the Corinthians, he does make a certain, a certain um, uh, interjections in there. But uh, in green, I have highlighted the actual um, words of the creed that he uh, quotes. Uh, so he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he also, that he appeared to Cephas, that is a, the other name for Peter, the Hebrew name for Peter, uh, then to the twelve, that's the apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, uh, although some have fallen asleep. So this is a parenthetical statement that he makes a comment about now as he's writing a, a few decades later, two decades later to the Corinthians. And then last of all, as to the untimely born, he, appealed, he appeared also to me. So he says also, I've seen him as well, a bit later after the fact. Um, so, so uh, looking at that creed, now, uh, when I grew up as a Christian, people would use the 500 people as some sort of a big thing, very well attested, but I actually think it's, a, it's not a strong argument. Uh, no one could actually verify. They are anonymous. You cannot uh, go and uh, verify that there are actually 500 if you don't know who to ask. So I'm not going to depend on those 500 people. Um, you know, you cannot prove or disprove. Uh, no one could at that time, I think. Um, but uh, the Gospels do mention uh, by name, uh, I think that would be about 19 of, of the, of the uh, witnesses. So uh, if, uh, if if the witnesses wouldn't check out, if someone wanted to check, could go and interrogate any of them, if that wouldn't check out, that would discredit the, uh, the, the whole book, the whole uh, gospel that mentions them. And these would be uh, four times attested. Uh, at least two of them are independent, if, if you think Matthew quote Mark. But we do actually, I also believe uh, that they are actually, all of them are independent, so Matthew is not quoting Mark in this case. Um, but Mary Magdalene, uh, we have Mary, the mother of James the Younger, uh, Salome, who was uh, the mother of uh, two of the apostles, John, uh, James and uh, John, uh, Johanna, uh, who also Luke mentions exactly who she was, so she was the wife of uh, this person, Kusa, uh, who was actually also a Herod's household manager, so so very well identified person. Uh, then uh, we have by th three gospels and that creed uh, testifies to uh, the fact that Jesus 
appeared to the twelve. So they they believe that uh, they've seen uh, Jesus, and then. Um, we also have James, the brother of Jesus, who was initially skeptical. So the, the, the gospel accounts tell us that um, the, the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him uh, while he was alive. And Jesus himself also says that uh, when he was in his hometown, no one is, uh, no prophet is without regard, except maybe in his own uh, town and in his own household. So he does say that his own household didn't uh, regard him initially. Uh, but uh, we later see in Acts, uh, later in Acts, he actually chairs a very important meeting uh, called the Jerusalem Council. So he is, uh, he is now actually one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Um, so um, yeah, so that's, that's evidence that he uh, changed his mind. Now you think about it also, what would it take uh, for you to convince your family member that you are, uh, that you came back to life or that you uh, are, you know, someone theologically very special, like for example, that you are God. Um, <laughs> that is quite a difficult, uh, difficult uh, thing to, a uh, person to convince. Uh, we also uh, get a mention of Cleopas. So some of these witnesses, uh, I must say, they are not in the, they are not multiply attested. Uh, so so you always have to be a little cautious here. But I do think that you can make an argument that uh, them being uh, witnesses being fabricated, fabricating witnesses would be very risky because that would risk discrediting the, the whole book. Um, so so I do think that. They are, um, you know, because they're named, uh, they do have uh, quite an important uh, evidence, uh, evidential force there. And finally, we have Paul, who was a Pharisee. He was not a, a believer. He was uh, one of the enemies of the Christian church for the first few years. Uh, he persecuted Christians and he, um, yeah, he, uh, he had an experience that was big enough that he changed his mind. Um, and it must have been something a little more than just meeting a man on the road. Uh, because meeting a man on the road doesn't really, uh, is, is not sufficiently uh, strong enough to just suddenly get convinced that you're meeting God uh, in some way. So, so there, there are a few, a few things and you can read uh, his own testimony in the book of Acts. Um, or yeah, uh, his own testimony also, the third person account of uh, what happened there in Acts chapter 9. So he changed his mind. Um, now, the, uh, now, okay, so they claimed that they've seen Jesus. Okay, so how do we know that they believed? Um, so, right, so one thing again, uh, James and Paul were not uh, really, uh, were not really, James was changed his mind, so he, he didn't believe initially. And then Paul also uh, didn't believe initially. So that's, that's one thing, one piece of evidence. The other part is, again, something that sometimes Christian, Christian books often abuse a bit too much. They would say, oh, all the disciples were martyred for their faith. In fact, we have uh, very little evidence uh, for most of them that they were martyred for their faith. But um, we do know that they were persecuted for their faith. 
so we do have accounts that all the apostles were uh, beaten uh, for, for proclaiming the resurrection. Um, Peter and John on a separate occasion were arrested and then uh, Stephen, who we don't know whether he was an eyewitness or not, but when he was uh, stoned to death and he really enraged the, the Jewish authorities, that started a general persecution for, of the church. So from that point onwards, preaching the message about the risen Jesus was dangerous. Um, so, so, the, so, so the the disciples and, and all the other witnesses would have risked their lives too if they kept proclaiming. Um, finally, we also know uh, about a few martyrs. So James was uh, killed uh, by Herod, uh, Peter was also imprisoned, um, and then uh, Peter, in the, at the end of his life, well, I mean, literally at the end of his life, he, he was uh, crucified uh, under Caesar Nero, which is also uh, confirmed uh, by uh, John's Gospel. Uh, the, and then uh, we also know that Paul, so this skeptic, uh, the, this enemy who, who became a Christian, he was beaten three times and he was even once stoned. So they thought he died, but he survived. Uh, but he stoned, uh, he, he recovered uh, after a few days and he went, went on to the next town and pre preached the same gospel. So, so in spite of all of these persecutions and even uh, deaths uh, of, uh, of, of the martyrs, uh, we don't have any reports of any one of them uh, recanting, taking back any of their words. And I do think also it's quite reasonable to suspect that if one of them, um, one of them kind of uh, admitted that this was all a hoax, that would have had a, a probably devastating effect to the uh, whole movement. Um, so there you go. Um, so I think I think basically it is. Uh, this is why. This is why actually uh, the, the historians, uh, even atheist historians, they will say, they will admit that the disciples sincerely believed that what they were preaching was true. They weren't lying. Um, so here are the, the summary of the four facts. Uh, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Uh, his tomb was placed in the tomb uh, by Joseph of Arimathea. Um, his uh, tomb was empty, uh, discovered by women. And the disciples believed uh, that uh, they saw Jesus uh, alive. Um, so let's uh, investigate now a few possible hypotheses. Um, well, first hypothesis, maybe Jesus passed out. Um, we'll think about, so, so he didn't actually die. Maybe uh, he st someone st stole the body. Uh, maybe disciples hallucinated. These are all uh, proposed uh, solutions that certain uh, atheists or naturalists uh, proposed as maybe we don't need to appeal to a miracle, maybe it could have happened uh, by some sort of natural event. Um, so, you know, uh, or maybe maybe Jesus got replaced, or maybe uh, the final question that will be, we'll also investigate because that also has its own problems. So, did Jesus rise from the dead? Um, so, let's think about is it rational to believe that Jesus passed out? Uh, so that uh, hypothesis uh, admits that yes, Jesus was buried, the tomb was empty, and the disciples sincerely believed uh, in Jesus' resurrection, but uh, that's because Jesus didn't die on the cross. 
Um, and uh, there are many problems with this hypothesis that no one really believes it anymore. Um, but uh, it's uh, very unlikely to uh, survive crucifixion when you're nailed, especially after you've been flogged. Um, Romans were expert killers. Um, they uh, would make sure that a person is dead by uh, piercing the heart. So he would have a punctured lung. Uh, he would have a uh, he would have a pierced heart. Uh, no one survives that. And then even if uh, if uh, he survived that somehow, then he has to uh, he would have died of dehydration. Um, by uh, in the tomb uh, after a few uh, nights and then ultimately even if he managed to get out of that tomb he would be in serious need of medical attention it would take months to recover from something like that he wouldn't have uh, convinced the disciples that he is the glorious son of god conquering death um, so so he would be just barely alive and also uh, probably Paul would not be convinced by meeting just a mere man like that uh, later on, uh, even if he fully recovered. Uh, so, so there are some problems here. I think it would take essentially a psychological miracle, uh, not only a physical miracle of surviving something like that, but also a psychological miracle of convincing the disciples that um, he is conquering death here when he clearly just barely survived. Um, okay, so how about conspiracy? Maybe uh, th that, that hypothesis says, well, yes, Jesus died and he was buried and the tomb was empty, but that's because the disciples stole the body and then lied about the resurrection. They invented this. Um, and as we said, liars make poor martyrs. And uh, when I say martyrs, it's not only uh, the actual martyrs, but also the threat uh, of it uh, was uh, hanging over all of them. And uh, this also fails to explain uh, the, the uh, appearances and uh, especially those, uh, the conversion of Paul and James. Um, and yeah, basically uh, you would also need on that conspiracy uh, that conspiracy would need to involve about, uh, well, again, about 19 witnesses. They would have to be lying about it, and that means uh, um, it's very un unlikely that not one of them would break. Uh, there was a Watergate uh, scandal, uh, part of which involved m many of the most powerful uh, leaders uh, of the United States to uh, on a to, to to cover up the scandal and they uh, the scandal or the thing came out uh, or the, the the conspiracy broke after three weeks and Chuck Colson uh, one of them who was involved in this he also was investigating the case for the resurrection and he says you're telling me that we, we couldn't we the most powerful people we couldn't make it um, make them um, hold the conspiracy for three weeks and you're telling me that a bunch of fishermen could just uh, make up and uh, make a conspiracy that lasts for uh, generations um, so that's uh, these are some of the problems with the conspiracy um, maybe they hallucinated and i think if you were to ask most of the atheist scholars they would probably say really that they don't know what happened to jesus they just uh, don't think he rose from the dead, but but they don't know what happened. Maybe they hallucinated. That's usually the preferred 
uh, hypothesis. So that one says that, yes, Jesus died, was buried, and disciples believed he rose again because they were, um, they hallucinated Jesus. And uh, the, there are problems. It doesn't explain the empty tomb, which, uh, you know, we've established uh, from both Christian and kind of the, the Jewish polemic that admits that there was an empty tomb. There was a problem with producing Jesus's body. So they, uh, they, you know, the empty tomb could have been, or this uh, movement could have been defeated if they could just produce the body. And then um, the hallucinations, I've, I've once interviewed a very respected uh, uh, emeritus professor of psychiatry, uh, Andrew Sims. And he said that the best uh, medically reported case of a group delusion uh, would be two people. <laughs> uh, two people, uh, the husband and wife, being in, in close contact so that they talk uh, to each other so much that they converge on one delusion. Um, there was one case where someone reported three people, but he wasn't, uh, that professor wasn't convinced that all three experienced actually the same delusion. It was one of them was still different. Because hallucinations and delusions are subjective, they're a bit like dreams. You cannot share a dream, you don't dream the same dream. Yeah, I mean, that would be nice if I could just say to someone, um, you know, hey, join me in my dream, I'm dreaming about a holiday, <laughs> you know, join me in my dream, we'll have a free holiday. Um, that's, uh, hallucinations are subjective, they happen in your brain, so, uh, so it's very, it's essentially impossible. Now, we would need to have um, hallucinations um, not only to individuals, but to groups, and then I think uh, in total that would be two groups, one pair, and uh, a few individuals. I don't remember how many in the end. Uh, I do remember that I've counted it once. But it's in many places, in many contexts, outside, inside buildings. Um, yeah, very difficult. I, I would say this is probably also a very... You would need to postulate a psychological miracle to appeal to this. Um, and then, uh, uh, last hypothesis that someone substituted Jesus, I'm going to say uh, that there was some sort of secret twin, maybe. Um, even twins cannot impersonate uh, their, uh, each other to a group of friends. It's very easy. They say maybe one minute, um, but, but not really. So it's very difficult to do that. And then, still, doesn't explain the empty tomb, uh, doesn't... Um, uh, yeah, I don't think it uh, does, uh, explains Paul's conversion. Um, yeah, and especially in that time, no one had a secret twin. There is just no way to hide a secret twin. Everyone knows everyone in a in a village. So, so you know, as Sherlock Holmes put it, it's never twins. <laughs> um, so. Now, the, the last question is, well, uh, maybe Jesus rose from the dead, so that's the uh, proposal, and uh, many will object, well, but that's a miracle, and that should be the last thing you think of, and I agree, that is the last thing I've, I can think of, the, the, all the other previous ones have, uh, have uh, <coughs> serious problems, I think, they, they really appeal to miracles themselves. So. So that will be, uh, and the resurrection hypothesis does explain all the historical data, but there are certain problems. Now, if you are convinced, if you have 100% certainty that God does not exist, 
then indeed you cannot believe in, in the resurrection because that requires some sort of a supernatural event. Um, so that hypothesis requires God to exist and to perform miracles. So to interfere in the, in the universe. So basically what you need to have is a universe not being a closed system in physical language. I'm a physicist, so, so that's what it is. So if you have a proof that the universe is a closed system, then of course that couldn't have happened. And then also it requires, because, because Jesus, if you study the claims of Jesus, uh, what he claimed to be rising from the dead would have been would have validated the claims um, He claimed to be essentially uh, he claimed to be God himself one with the father so that would uh, That would require either he was uh, he was telling the truth uh, He was who he claimed he was or uh, He was lying in which case it's very unlikely to think that God would um, raise a blasphemer um, so it requires, the hypothesis requires certain things that some of you might find unlikely. So let's think about, does God exist? I do think that, is it rational to believe? Are these very improbable? Um, I would like to uh, argue that uh, I, find, I found in the, in the years, many years of my uh, research into the arguments for God's existence, I found some, many of them quite convincing. Um, I think that God is the best explanation, that there is something rather than nothing. That's called, also called the argument from contingency. I think that God is the best explanation why the universe behaves regularly. So as a physicist, um, I expect, it's a dogma of physics, that when you do an experiment uh, uh, again and again, it will produce you, it will give you repeatable conclusions. Why would it be? Why, why would there be any um, order in the universe? Uh, so that's called the nomological argument. So, so why does the universe obey the laws of nature, right? In some sense, why are there even laws of nature? Um, then there is a fine tuning argument. The universe um, has precisely, fu fundamental constants of the universe are precisely tweaked so that um, uh, existence of stars and planets is possible and therefore existence of life. Uh, if they were tiny bit different, and these are really, really, really small numbers, uh, tiny bit different, uh, no form of any life would appear anywhere in the universe because there wouldn't be stars or planets. And then God is the best explanation of what we know about consciousness. Uh, I, if you want, you can talk to me about it uh, later. I do think that there are about minimally seven arguments uh, to believe that uh, we, we have souls that we are not reducible just to uh, matter uh, molecules and particles just moving. Uh, I think there are certain qu qualities about mental states that are not reducible to physical states. Um, that is also the best explanation of, the of either. Now here, some people would say, if you're a naturalist, I would say God is the best explanation for the existence of moral facts. But there are some atheists who believe that there are cer certain moral facts that are out there in a platonic realm, in which case I would say um, accessibility. God is the best explanation why we can actually moving, we, us being more, just mere particles are moving around, how can we access those moral facts? So that's called the argument from moral knowledge, uh, developed by Dustin Crummett. 
Uh, and finally, God is, I think, the best explanation of why widespread religious experiences. I think, of course, there are some arguments that uh, this could have evolved naturally, but that doesn't mean uh, it, uh, they're false. Uh, and I, it does seem that across all the cultures everywhere uh, in the world, there is some sort of, uh, there was some sort of concept of a supernatural. So, okay, so I would say, I think it's rational to believe God exists. Therefore, miracles cannot be excluded outright. They're, they're possible. And then finally, would God want to? If, if we think, okay, there is some sort of a God, we don't know much about him, um, but would, uh, why would God want to? I, I, think, I do think that from the moral argument, you may be able to establish that uh, God is also good. Um, let's let's uh, suppose that, uh, that God is good, but that's an answer that uh, you would have to think about much more deeply. Um, why would God want to be carnal incarnate? And I would present here Swinburne, Richard Swinburne presented these. Um, maybe this is plausible that God would want to help people solve the problem of sin. Uh, most religions actually have con some sort of concept of sin, that evil uh, deserves a punishment or a sac sacrifice. Um, and second reason that why God might want to become incarnate, so become a human, um, most people uh, believe that there is some sort of a good way or evil way to live and um, God would want to show us how, uh, how we should live. Um, and also a loving God would want to show solidarity with his creatures, maybe something like uh, parents who have children uh, who uh, are undergoing chemotherapy, um, they lose all their hair, so the parents decide to show solidarity with them and they shave off their heads as well. So maybe that's, um, that would be one of the reasons why God would, so some, some of the reasons why God would want to become a human being to experience uh, the, the world that he created. Um, so in, in light of this, I think it is rational to believe that an incarnate God would do the sorts of things actually Jesus did. If you think about these things, that's exactly what Jesus uh, uh, came uh, and uh, came to do. And I also think there is a different argument that we've not mentioned here, but there is also a separate argument to be made just investigating Jesus' claims about whether he was a liar or whether he was a lunatic or whether he was actually who he claimed he was. And now I'm not going to introduce this argument now, but if that argument holds, and you can read about it in uh, many places really, in all, all sorts of books, um, the, if that argument holds, that also uh, lends posterior support or lends evidence that not only God uh, would uh, want to do it, but he has done it. Um, so there we go. So our, uh, the summary, I think, of, of, of the facts. Uh, this is a summary of all the, of all the um, theories um, and of all the facts. And I do think that the problems I've, uh, I've uh, highlighted uh, regarding each, each of, the, of the hypotheses, I think that the, the hypotheses here, the problems here with the resurrection are adequately addressed by the arguments that I've uh, given, that it's rational to believe God exists, and wants to, and he would want to become a human, and would want to die, um, suffer, and die for us. So, so in light of that, I think 
Well, I can't give you a proof. I'm not going to sell you, tell you this is a proof. But I do think it's irrational. Uh, that's, that's what I have been repeating here. That it's rational to believe uh, the resurrection hypothesis. I think it best explains all the data. Um, so the, uh, the incarnation and resurrection are not absurdly unlikely. Alternative explanations, I, thi I think, I'm convinced, they are absurdly unlikely. And they fa fail to explain the evidence. And then, in the end, uh, resurrection does explain um, all of it. But so, so that's my conclusion. Um, what I would like you uh, encourage you to do is to investigate. Um, investigate it for yourselves. Read uh, the documents. Read the scholarship if you're interested in that. And um, at least read the gospels. Read those eyewitness accounts. Uh, you know, Mark or John or, or Luke uh, or Matthew, right? Uh, writings of Paul. Uh, that's very easily accessible. You can read it online uh, on any Bible app or anything like that. So that would be uh, it for today.